Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. My name is Ron Small. Welcome to the very first episode of the Spotcast at my production company's website, swayproductions.com, or on iTunes. This is a podcast aimed at demystifying commercial production for those who are even interested in it being demystified. Does it need to be demystified? Does anybody care? I do, so I'm assuming that maybe there's a couple other people out there who do as well. Full disclosure, I should not be doing this. My voice is awful. Sometimes I can't even believe it's coming out of my mouth. So uh, believe me, I recognize that this is not pretty, that nobody, let alone me, really wants to listen to it. I'm not an interviewer. I'm doing this because I wish it existed. I listen to podcasts all the time throughout my day, when I'm eating, when I'm driving, when I'm shitting. Um, and I, I have searched I have searched the vast expanses of the internet and have yet to find a single podcast that covers commercial production. There is a fucking podcast about Scrabble, okay? I'm not making that up. It exists. My hope is that this could be a place for people who are interested in commercial production to go and learn from those who are doing it, as well as a place for people involved in commercials to learn from their colleagues. The problem is, again, this is not something I should be doing, so this is going to be kind of unstructured and more conversational than it probably should be. But I think if the topic interests you, you'll get a good amount out of it. If it doesn't interest you, you'll be bored and annoyed by my voice, which I am bored and annoyed by every day of my life. So, so trust me, I know the feeling. I sympathize. I'm going to be as brief as possible about my background, as it is in the point, but just to let you know where I'm coming from, I, uh, I used to work at a small marketing firm which is a long, horrible story that I will not get into at this point. My partner there, the, uh, the great Anthony Lombardo, and I left about two years ago, and we started our own production company, Sway Productions, in which we produce commercials, product intros, things of that nature. We're both producers, and I direct the commercials and various videos that we produce. My first guest is the lovely, inimitable Adam Lizagor. Adam was kind enough to give me three hours of his time over the course of two days, I've cut that together into what I believe are two really informative episodes. Adam began by cutting director's commercial reels for a production company, moved into post-supervision, then eventually left it all to co-develop an iPhone app called Birdhouse. This is where it gets really interesting for me. Adam directed and starred in a video for Birdhouse, which is a really delightful, charming spot that you should absolutely check out. You can see that in his other work at sandwichvideo.com. As a result of that Birdhouse video, other tech companies began approaching him to do videos for their products. Since then, his budgets have grown exponentially, as has his production values, but he certainly retained the charm of that initial video. He appears in a good chunk of his work as sort of a postmodern pitch man. Postmodern in a sense that he won't do a video for a product he doesn't believe in, which certainly separates him out from a lot of people who do this, and his style is the very opposite of in your face. In our interview, Adam mentions his admiration for the director, Jim Jarmusch, and there are some comparisons to be made between the two. Both are stylists with a sly sense of humor, the kind that sneaks up on you. Both feature expertly constructed compositions that are a pleasure to look at, and both have a droll, deadpan rhythm. In the way that Jarmusch takes pleasure in the various manners in which humans interact, Adam takes pleasure in the way humans interact with the products he's pitching. His spots are bubbling with infectious excitement and delight about the products they feature, and it's truly genuine. We begin our conversation discussing commercial directors. You know who's awesome? Tell me. Um... There's a commercial director named Noam Murrow. Do you know that name? Yeah, is he the guy who did the Halo spots? I think so. Let me. Uh, he's uh, represented at Biscuit Filmworks. He directed a feature. I, I, re I don't really pay too much attention to ad industry stuff, but 
um, the the few times that I've seen his name pop up and I've like, like gotten to look at his work, I just think he just does exquisite stuff. Um, and he's like a mainstay of the ad industry. He's been in it for decades. And he's one of those, I think he's one of those kind of godfather-like figures. Are you familiar with Joseph Kahn? Sure, yeah. Well, I worked on Torque. Um, Did you really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, I love that movie. Oh, it's a great movie. It really is. Um, and what was even fun... With Adam uh, Scott? More, more, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. What, what was even more fun about Torque... First of all, I spent a year on it. When I first came... Holy shit! Adam, we have to talk about this. <laughs> when I first came to L.A., um, back to L.A. Um, from New York, my first job, I accidentally happened into a job as a visual effects PA on Torque just because um, a friend of a friend was the visual effects supervisor. And I went to the set because somebody knew I was interested in movies. And I went to the set when they were shooting in downtown uh, about a month into production on Joseph Kahn's first movie. I didn't know who he was and I knew it was cool and everything. And uh, it was on the day that they had just been like fed up with their visual effects PA. Um, So they sort of just decided on the spot to get rid of that guy and hire me. So then um, I was working on that, and it was a faster, more awesome education than my entire four years of film school. Um, How and, so? You know, what, did you, what did you get out of it? Oh, man, when you just uh, – when you get to sit back and watch um, 100 people at once do exactly what their job – what is in their job description at the maximum e- efficiency because if they don't, they're going to get fired and somebody else is going to replace them. And – the whole day will go badly if they don't do their thing. That's a thing of beauty because when you come from like student filmmaking, nobody knows what the hell they're doing. It's like Keystone Cops. So all of a sudden you watch that and the stakes are raised and you go, oh, oh, okay, this is how you make a movie. This is not none of that other bu- bullshit about, um, you know, has nothing to do with, you know, preserving <laughs> the integrity of the mean streets of New York City. It's just like, you know, do your job right, you know, because you're a professional. Um, so that was a thing of beauty to watch. And that's a very, uh, I mean, that's that's a super stylish, I mean, that movie is all about kind of the style of it. So it, right. seems, it seems like they would be taking a lot of time uh, to do, you know, to do like one show, you know, one dolly shot or whatever. Yeah, well, for sure, because Joseph Kahn is somebody who has a vision, but also it was a lot of stuff to shoot in, I think, three months of production because... Uh, he comes from a music video background where, holy shit, you shoot everything quick and cheap, and then you cook, cut it even quicker and cheaper. And so he knows he he knew how to work fast and you know get what he want what he wanted. And he was totally impetuous and a total brat, but that's because he was working with a studio who didn't understand at all what he had in mind. And I think he knew that right away. And then he just kind of decided to have fun with it. And and that was that was part two of what I was going to say is it was so fun um, to have worked on that movie and then sort of appreciated it in my own way while it was totally you know sucked ass in the box office and got crapped all over for years and then to hear Joseph Kahn get interviewed on um, the filmcast uh, yeah on filmcast and hear about every 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 decision everything that motivated him. Um, and man, the guy's got a big ego and a huge head, um, physically a giant head. Um, they used to in the post facility they, that I used to work at. They called him Hamburglar, and uh, <laughs> but he was cool. You know, he was he was he was nice enough, and he was he seemed humble enough, and he was 29 at the time. 
Well, he's talked and, a lot about that that movie and uh, and kind of you know made fun of the whole the, the everything that that happened around it. Right. Yeah. I mean, basically, what he said is that the student Warner Brothers thought they were making Fast and the Furious on motorcycles, and he knew differently. No. See, I want. That's what I'm curious about, though, is how that is is how that disconnect uh, happened. I mean, it. So he was hired on to do uh, a Fast and Furious kind of movie, but did did he tell anybody that he was going to do what he did? You know what I no, mean? No. Like, not really. I don't think so. I mean. Well, that's what's interesting about it is is he's kind of like, well, you know, I thought I was doing this and they thought I was doing that, but was was there ever a discussion? You know what I mean? Like, like when they, when they were having meetings, was it was he like, you know, this this is a, I hate Fast and Furious and I'm going to do it this way and you know whatever, or was he just kind of playing along to do his own thing? I can't pretend to know because I wasn't in you know I was a PA, I was a VF, visual effects right. PA, I'm not asking. I'm I'm just kind of like thinking out loud. You know? No, exactly. Yeah, for sure. That's um, that's an interesting question i mean there were there was always studio presence on set so they could tell that he was like they could tell i mean they knew there was somebody approved that he could spend five thousand dollars on a giant prop key for a forced perspective shot you know somebody knew that that was going on and maybe that maybe they wouldn't do that in fast and the furious and i love how the the end of the movie it, it basically becomes a video game and yeah. It's like, oh, it's like oh see, CG. see, this is the, see. I worked for the facility that made that um, that made that s- sequence, um, and we worked on it for a year. And you know, Holy if you work that sequence was, for a year, or the the, whole, the the project. No, the the sequence. Wow, really? Because <laughs> it was entirely, it was almost entirely CG. I mean, we we went <laughs> we went and shot in downtown and shot plates with. Um, Oh geez, I forget what what it was called. This camera that could shoot sort of in in three hundred sixty degree. No, it was a lidar. That was that was what it was called. And what it would do is a sensor that would shoot. Um, it was almost like you know motion sort of radar. Where you what they needed was to collect a whole shitload of geometry of of the environment of downtown because this stupid fictional motorcycle that could go the speed of light was gonna do a do a chase downtown and uh, you know I'll I'll save most of the boring stuff in uh, as far as the inner workings but I do remember Joseph being in in a review session um one time when the lead compositor is showing him the sequence and we're showing him like that one of this shot one of the shots where or the part of the sequence where um this super bike is blowing you know is just like blowing through downtown and there's debris flying around everywhere and of course it's all cg debris it's all made up and shot on green screen um and stuff and the one thing that joseph was insisting on uh, as far as his his taste in the debris was that there were there were like he wanted more crack vials like we had put in cg crack vials um (laughs) yeah blowing blowing around through (laughs) <laughs> through downtown as the bike went by and he right. just wanted more crack vials more crack what we need is more crack in here and there's, so that a, was shot, actually, there's a shot that, of that was the direction stupid... though to put those in initially was uh yeah somebody wanted crack somebody. vials and then somebody else and then he wanted more crack vials right because he saw it and he's like this isn't enough you know what this needs more of and there's a shot in that sequence where the bike blows by a girl and then her skirt blows up and she's got a, like a real meaty ass that was a real movie. That was, and then uh, um, who's uh, what's his face? 
who does a film podcast for, uh, over at UCB, Doug, Doug Benson. He does one um, that's like Doug, I think it's Doug, Doug Benson on movies or something like that. And, and every once in a while he'll do, he'll do a screening and do a live podcast version and there's an audience and there's a panel and everything. And so he did, they did a screening of Torque and Adam Scott was in the audience and then I forget who else, a couple of other comedians, maybe Paul Shear. So that, and I, so I went to that and it was just loads of fun. And, but the thing, the thing that uh, was notable about watching that movie in front of an audience in this new context was that we were all supposed to be there theoretically to make fun of the movie, right? But there's nothing to make fun of because it's just a ridiculous fun movie. It's, it's making fun of itself. It's super is making fun of itself. So all there is to do at that point is sit back and watch this awesome, entertaining movie. And I think that you know who won? Joseph won. Yes, he did. <laughs> the studio didn't. So before that, you were editing director's commercial reels. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about uh, what that was like. Well, you know, directors have huge egos, and when most of the most of the rest of the process, in terms of them getting the work, is out of their control, they're going to obsess over the things that are in their control, which is like, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think the Do you think that the uh, the energy drink spot should go before the dog food spot or after? <laughs> which would you? And you what's know, your and answer to that? Like, do you have to come up with like a like a super like kind of uh, you know like like you've really thought about this guy's this guy's real kind of answer? Yeah, well, that's the that's part of being a twenty three year old is you suck up to, you know you you um you have to stroke their ego so you you go I don't know man some of those shots in the dog food spot are some of your best work and I mean like really reminiscent of early oh my god I want to kill myself you know it was a dark time in my life let's just say that. Yeah, but it sounds like you learned a lot from it. Yeah, well, it's funny how how quickly you start to take those things for granted. Like, let's say um, your favorite um, your favorite producer invites you to be hires you to be a personal assistant. Day one, it's awesome. Day two, you got to pick up dry cleaning, and day three, you're getting screamed at and coffee thrown at your head. It just gets worse, and then you're over it quickly. So that's kind of how it was for me. But um, it was fun to just, like, be around directors and go through their process a little bit. And, you know, every once in a while they would get the job yeah. that they had pitched. Was that super rare? Was that was that something? It that... was super rare. I yeah. mean, the, in- the industry was just going nowhere. And the the company I was working for had been around 20 years. And at the end of my tenure there, it, it, had, it, got, it went out of business. Really? So yeah, why yeah. why was that? Do you think was that just the 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 time you know that that you were working there, or is that just in, in general? It's just su- such a tough industry that it's hard for a, a company like that to stay afloat. I think it's because I sent out bad demo reels. <laughs> you weren't <laughs> thinking about where the dog food should go. Yeah, well, I yeah. labeled them incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I the the yeah no, it was just because the industry was just rife with with overspending on everything and you know still i mean you uh, you walk into your average production company and everything looks so expensive it's like how the hell do they pay for this well the the answer is somebody pays for it but it's you know at some point somebody figures out that it's not worth it anymore it's not worth writing all those huge checks how did that lead to birdhouse 
And what is Birdhouse for people who don't know? Okay, uh, so Birdhouse was an iPhone app that I developed, or I know I, I shouldn't say I developed it. I was a part of the development process in the sense that, like, I was sort of integral to the design process and figuring out how the app works and that it should exist and everything. And then, how did um, the idea the actual, come about? Uh, basically, I just wanted. I, I used to keep my ideas for jokes on Twitter in my notes app on the iPhone. And then I just always, it was, and there was no copy and paste in the first version of the iPhone. So and you made that copy and paste video too. That was, uh, right. Yeah. Was that the first thing you did? Yeah, that was the first thing. Yeah, I guess it was. Yeah. No, I mean, I had done some, actually I'd done some PSAs, uh, a few PSAs, um, for, uh, my, a few years ago, a number of years ago, my sister, um, lives in San Luis Obispo, and she was on the bike coalition there just to promote, you know, bike safety and civility and share the road and everything. And they they asked, she asked me if I would shoot a PSA that they could run on television there. And if I made it, they would definitely run on television. I thought that was awesome. So I grabbed a couple of friends from school, and over a weekend we shot and got, you know, got local community people involved and we shot three PSAs and it was really fun. And, um, did you I do used, it in your, in your kind of style or was it more, uh, were you still kind of working that out? I think that there are traces of my style in it, but it doesn't really have, it doesn't really have any humor, but what it, I mean, I, I, I won't show you those spots because they're embarrassing, but I, what I will tell you about them is that, um, it dawned on me when I was driving up to meet with my sister and talk about the project um, up there towards San Luis Obispo when I was driving up from L.A., I, I kept seeing these um, street signs, these these large traffic signs that said share the road and had an icon of a bicycle, like a silhouetted icon of a bicycle, right? And that's that be, for me became iconic of the whole um, campaign, sort of the whole message. And so what I decided to do was take that sign and make it a character in this campaign, and so, um, like in one of them, um, uh, a, a, a lady is driving and it's my sister driving my car and she's, um, and, and she's like, and there's a, there's a guy on a bicycle in front of driving and, uh, riding in front of her on the road and she's sort of cramping his style. Right? She's on his ass. And then, um, He's a little bit oblivious, but then um, in her rearview mirror, you see the reflection of that street sign kind of uh, like slide into view, and it's to share the road, and then it slides out of view, and uh, and then she um, and then she eases off. Right? It's a very simple idea, and it's sort of like you know elementary and stupid, but it worked. You know, it was kind of cute, and I used I, I used my you know my my compositing skills to to um, make that happen. And then the other two were very similar where the, the sign would play a role and those were great. And, you know, you know, she showed, uh, they, I finished them and I sent them off and she showed them to the bike coalition people and they, everybody applauded and it made me feel really good. And I thought, Oh, this is kind of cool. You know, I showed a couple of my friends here that are in the industry and they said, you know, they're quaint, but, you know, they, 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 of course, they look like homebrew PSAs, but, and they were shot on the HVX 200, 200 that I borrowed from work. Um, but 
it ended up just like being that thing that gave me a little bit of confidence that to say that, oh, if this comes up, maybe again, that I could do it. You know? Was it ever your intention to go and, and do those kind of videos or to, to start moving in, in that in, Certainly in that not PSAs. I mean, because, you know, just like anything, there's like... Okay, so I've never made spec spots, but I know that most people starting out do. And I know that you, the way you start out is you make some spec... If you get lucky enough, you get a little money to make a PSA, you know, and there's like a process, right? And then hopefully you get a bigger brand. Maybe you get to do a tourism spot uh, and the, the, the budgets get higher, the brands get better and everything like that. Um, so, no, I didn't – I've never been interested in like taking the normal tack of um, uh, the, the normal tra- trajectory to a career path. Um, and so I didn't. So I, I, I never, I, ne- I didn't want to make a spec spot, and I didn't want to make, um, uh, I didn't want to make a PSA. Did working um, at that that production company did that kind of sour you on that, or were you never thinking along those lines? It sort of did. You know, when you see that, when you see enough of something over and over and over and over and over again, you see. I don't know. It's. You, and there, there's not a, much passion behind behind what's good. It's it's all about getting the job, right? Right. You see you see a certain pattern, and then the specialness gets sort of dissolved away from it. And yeah, exactly. You see like different motivations and intentions sort of come to the surface. Like this person didn't really want to make to tell you know this person wasn't passionate about anti smoking. They sort of got an opportunity. And who knows that probably that they probably smoke, you know, that, that lying asshole probably just smokes two packs a day. If you're any other part of the industry or part of the process or even not in the industry and you look at a director, you go, wow, that, that person must know something that I don't know because they're directing. And, and the truth that, you know, as you work more towards that process, you find out that, no, it's not true. It's not so true. There's people have varying um, levels of ability and taste and skill sets, and each of those can put you in the director's chair. Um, but what you bring to it will determine, you know, how successful you are. But yeah, no, I, I always figured that a director was someone was somebody with far more confidence than me, and um, far better self-esteem. And somebody who would just sort of steamroll through the process and say, this is what I want and get out of my way, you know, like with a with a bullhorn and jodhpurs and. Um, but, you know, you know, you, you make very bold choices, though, in uh, in your videos. Uh, so it's interesting that you say that. Well, you know, what you did, what you discover, what I discovered early on and I got to go about it in a slow deliberate way of get you know growing the size of my crew and everything what i was most because i started by doing them by myself with just me shooting me being in front of the camera and me doing sound and then you know and then one person joined me and then two people joined me and then my biggest fear was that i wouldn't know what to do with 10 people behind the camera or 20 people behind the camera waiting for me and eventually you know, slowly I got used to the idea that, well, really what they are doing, what all those people are doing is they're showing up because they're getting paid to, and they're waiting for you to make decisions. And they're trusting once you make the decision that 
Not necessarily it's the most right thing, but it's the thing that you want. And they're there to serve you, what you want, right? So in order for them to do their job, you have to give them an answer. And you get used to the idea that if that's your job is to give them an answer, then just give them an answer and be confident in, in it. And then everybody feels good, feeling like they goes home feeling like they did their job. Um, and then whether or not you made the right choices will will be apparent in in you know in the final product and what you shot and everything but as far as managing a giant crew you get comfortable once you figure out that all people want are answers and you know it's the hesitation that makes a bad director it's interesting to see the evolution of what you've been doing from the earlier stuff uh, like the birdhouse video to your recent stuff your production values have grown a whole lot uh, so so what facilitated that shift uh, were, were clients asking for a bigger look from you or was that something that you chose to do um, it's almost like a bootstrapping type process where the more you have the more you want um, the, 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 the bigger your vision gets the more tools you need to achieve it that kind of thing and if that's coming from one end that's that's internally motivated right is that um, I want to shoot you know six locations with 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 thirty extras and all that stuff and then I have a producer that I work with that tells me okay that that's what this is how much that costs and I say oh glee you know and uh and like i I'm somebody who who kind of really still shudders at the amount of money that some of this stuff costs, especially in the in the real in the real ad world right in the real commercial world. Um, where there's so much other stuff like overhead to support. And so I'm always sort of like trying to whittle down costs a little bit to make sure that there's some, you know, savings. I don't know, some efficiency to what's what's being done and just not pure waste because I feel like, you know, waste in some way or another shows up on on the screen um, so the producer then tells me this is what that costs. And I go, okay, so maybe either we approach the client and say, this is what that costs and please, you know, pay for it. Or maybe it just means, um, paring down expectations and rewriting it a little bit cheaper with four locations instead of six or two shoot days instead of three. And I do that stuff all the time. Um, I don't just I get blank checks by any stretch. Um, but you find out quickly that, you know, big corporations are willing to spend some money to communicate their messages with higher value and higher quality. And, uh, I forget what was the, what was the first part of the question? Just how the, how you kind of evolved from, from Oh, right. Yeah. So that's the internally motivated stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and so how do you, how do you sell that to a client? Like, so when you're working with, um, you know, you you did some videos for Square, and those were kind of a, I think on the smaller end, right, of, of what sure. you were doing. And then yeah, the when micro, you go to the micro end, right? Yeah, and but then when you go to Airbnb, which um, looks great, I mean, that's that's like a huge production. It looks like. I mean, it was, but it was that was also done sort of on the cheap as well. Really? Um, yeah, and most of that I can attribute to the DP that I work with. Um, a lot. Who's uh, her name is Rachel Morrison. She's super talented. Um, she did the of, the hills, right? Oh yeah, yeah, she did. She shot on the hills, 
and she does she shoots a lot of features, uh, mostly indie features. We went to school together at NYU, and she was just a superstar right out of the gate. And she then went to AFI, and she's got a divine aesthetic, and um, and she has this ability to kind of extract humanity from from anything through the lens, and I basically worship her and not only that she's sort of just really fun to work with as well no attitude calm down adam <laughs> oh calm down she's taken what did you shoot that on the uh the oh that was on 5d you know and the, the airbnb and so, video was on a 5d sh- sure yeah so rachel has uh also the ability to sort of take what's give you know what's off with the resources of a given situation which sometimes are not that great and sort of mold it into something sculpt it into something that looks really great and so we were able to do that airbnb video relatively on the cheap for you know six days of shooting it would normally cost x thousands of dollars and we did it for a fraction of that i mean taste is super expensive and like you lucked out if you can find somebody with technical proficiency and taste who's willing to do it for less money than their their value is you super lucked out and i've i've lucked out you know i've lucked out a few times so um but it ended up being a a, you know being a great thing and i knew um, that was an example of one where I heard about the product, I heard exactly what it was and what it did, and then I the idea for the video came pretty much right away where um, it's again, it's sort of like the continuous the continuous delivery of of message um, where edits sell the 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 change in venue. Um, because that product is all about venue, right? It's all about space. And to answer your question, how do you sell that to the client? Um, you know, when you have, it's all incrementally, but it's all like when, you know, every every time you do something that proves that you know a little bit more about what you're doing, then somebody's willing to invest in you. How do you go about art direction in something like that? Um, well, without an art direction budget, um, you go in and see what's in the space. And on Airbnb, you're at an advantage because the most interesting sp- spaces are sort of art-directed already. And then you look through the lens and you you judiciously move stuff around. You move a lamp over here. You move a plant over there. Um, and you sort of compose the frame as you go. Um, and you use what's, what's already available. I, we didn't spend any money on art-directing anything in that. A lot of times when people choose the 5D, they're choosing it because of the shallow depth of field that you can get with it. But the uh, the Airbnb video is um, is shot with a lot of really nice deep focus shots uh, for the most part, um, in, in which there there is no shallow depth of field. It's weird how shooting with a DSLR just tends to have this uniformity of aesthetic, you know, in everything that you see. And a lot of it is really nice and a lot of it is pretty a lot of it is um not great and sort of gives away the the gag because people don't know necessarily how to use their cameras in the best way and like i almost hesitate to mention because it's such a simple 
it's such such a simple rule. It's like number one rule in the DSLR our filmmaking rule book that is this most commonly violated rule because people don't know is don't set your camera to audio to auto. You like set that 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 thing that says uh, shutter is your best friend. You set it to one fiftieth. Um, and then you're not going to get Saving Private Ryan all over the place. And anybody can anybody can buy a DSLR, and anybody can shoot really high quality looking stuff. And anybody can buy the 1.4 uh, f f-stop lens and get really nice depth of focus and um, shoot in low light situations and everything. But if you really if you're looking for the th- and it used to be remember that 24 frames per second was the big secret. You know yeah. like. Like why? Why does my I'd get emails. Why does my stuff look like crap? Well, you know, film film is shot at twenty four frames per second. Um, you're shooting with a video camera that doesn't do video uh, do twenty four frames per second. It does thirty frames twenty nine nine seven thirty frames per second, which is what we see when you see TV and vi- you know video. And you know, video has been accessible to generations of people now, and that's why it looks like video, like home video. But if you really want to get that film look, um, you know, start by shooting 24. And then and then it's like it's like a revelation, right? Remember the first when the – what's it called? The DVX-100? Yep. The yeah, DVX-100 came out, and we, could, uh, and, and we could all shoot with 24. It was like, holy crap, I didn't even need to go to film school after all. Yeah, and, uh, and that was all I thought I needed when I came out. I'm like, you know, I, I wasn't even thinking about depth of field. I was like, oh, my God, it's 24 right, frames Right, there's other look stuff. It's like a movie. To, and then right, it it's still got a, th- a yeah. third-inch, you know, CCD and everything. Right. It still looks kind of like video. But that motion um, artifacting in in 24, 124th of a second is just, it goes, I would say it does 50% of the work in making your stuff look film-like. Um, and then, so to for those who are uninitiated, if, if who are listening, um, the shutter is the thing that exposes the amount of light per second. Like a shutter opens and closes basically in a film camera, um, and it does that. It, your frame gets exposed to light twenty four f- times a second. So the fraction of a second that your shutter is moving at in a film camera is one forty eighth. Um, right to open and then close it, and so a twenty fourth of a second is how a film camera exposes light, and you would want to replicate that in a digital sensor as well. So the closest approximation to one forty eighth of um, for the fraction of time uh, that the sensor gets exposed is one fiftieth on a camera. So if you set that thing to 50 if you set that shutter speed to 50 you're you're um you're uh, getting uh mar- m- um, motion blur of moving elements in the frame that look more like what film looks like so you, you seem to be a, a bit of a camera buff uh are you paying attention at all to the scarlet versus canon stuff going on well not so much the scarlet because i think that's sort of still out of my price range and i don't really fully trust um, Isn't really, I feel like they're both in the same kind of. Uh, I, guess, I guess they are. I just ha- I think I have because I have more of a track record with. I've shot on bull. I've shot on red and I've shot on five um, D, which are not comparable products. But you know, because I have experience with both brands, I just tend to trust what Canon does 
over what red does. And I'm super excited about the C300 because I feel like, you know, my, it's something that finally my company can sort of afford. And, uh, I really look forward to the day where I don't have to be renting, um, where I can, you know, where I can rent it to, where I can, I can own it and then rent it back to myself and make the money back on in that way. What are you typically shooting uh, most of your stuff on now? Like, what did you shoot, like, Warby, Par- Warby Parker on, um, you know, the Small Demons uh, thing? Like, what, what's red. your typical camera that you go to? Warby Parker was on red, and... Uh, my uh, the DP of that one until recently owned his own red package, but he just sold it because he's real excited about other cameras. And then everything else mostly has been on uh, Alexa. I just love shooting with that camera, and the workflow is real nice. Yeah, that's the thing about about the red workflow is it's 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 so it's such a pain in the ass. Um, I think you know it so, really is. Yeah. First time I opened up that proprietary. Um, software for the conversion and I had to learn about debayering and oh my god what a mind bender it is I guess it's really extensible which is good and if you know what you're doing you you can do a lot with it but really all I want to do is start ingesting the footage and and start cutting which is still a pain in the ass about um, uh, Alexa footage that's shot in log color space because you know, if you throw it in the timeline and you don't have like some hardware viewer LUT, everything looks crappy, and so you have to spend that extra time rendering it with the LUT on it and to make it even look, you know, in like normal color space, which I, I don't like. I understand why LUTs exist. I just don't understand the science behind it. So in that sense, I'm not so much of a camera buff. I just, you know, I don't I don't own any nice glass. I don't any. I I I, lo, I I bought some lights on eBay, but they're like fluorescent, hideous lenses. I let lights, and uh, it's this it's this it's this uh, video lighting kit that a guy sells on eBay, and it comes with the funniest DVD you've ever seen. Not intentionally funny, but it's sort of like this old dude in Florida who wants to show you how to shoot, uh, you know, video poetry. You know, hello. Welcome to the magical world of video. I am Harold. I'm going to show you how to use three-point lighting yeah. to accentuate the drama in all your portrait shoots. And then he shows you, like, three-point lighting. And with, you know, the local waitress from Denny's, you know, standing in his subject. It's the funniest thing ever to watch two minutes of. Did you ever study marketing uh, at all? Or is, it, or, or is it kind of an intuitive approach with you? No, definitely just, like, comes straight from my butt it's just like it's it's all all it is is communication and and a little bit of education i don't even know what do, i i love i don't i'm not allergic to the term marketing because it's such a crucial thing that exists you know without it nobody would know anything about it is anything. it is a really amorphous uh, it really way of is saying a lot of nothing though yeah it's broad and yeah and says everything at the same time as it says nothing yeah it's kind of um, like a communications degree you know it's like what what is what the hell is that right and i never knew and i know i don't think i really yeah but had... i always felt i should get one though you know? did you get one no i didn't right yeah. but um, i was always, i was always told like like you know i'm like hey, i want to go into filmmaking and my parents would be like well you should you should get a communications degree that'll, mm-hmm. that'll do you well and what does that exactly mean? That's the th- I always ask them, and they they you know they they change the subject. Right. 
Like you already know how to communicate. Everybody I, does. I, I'm communicating right Except now. Except Nell. Nell doesn't. No, Nell does. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is like the you know it's like this is the second time this week that I've I've heard a Nell joke. <laughs> Did they do a, a chickapay? <laughs> <laughs> no. That's the go-to Nell joke. I've never even seen the movie, but I know a chickapay. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it either, and I, I know that as well. It wasn't really a popular movie. I wonder how that's you know that's come about. Now. There's oh, like just because it's so ri- it's that. so ridiculous. You know right. why it's it, it's it's um it's mythical in proportion because she, because Jodie Foster went full retard. And I and I don't mean retard as a pejorative. I mean that going, I mean <laughs> quote unquote going right. full retard in the Tropic Thunder. No, sense. I understand. It's like, You're quoting Tropic Thunder. Yeah. Oh boy, you are going to get some hate mail. I feel sorry for you. Um, what were you going to ask? Um, I don't know. You were talking about Nell. Nell. No, no. You're, so we were talking about marketing. So, so I, I'm I'm just wondering how, you know, I mean, a lot of people pay a lot of money to for marketing people, and it's just like what what goes into that? You know, you're you're doing it right. You're 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 creating your own concepts. You're pitching people on on your ideas. This, the root of marketing is market, right? So it's just figuring out how to deliver a product to the market. And people and that, trust you because they've seen your work and, and you've been doing it for a while and you do it well. No, I, well, I guess what they, what they trust is that if I'm, if I'm telling them about something through a video, and not just me personally, but if I'm making a video to tell them about something that it sort of has my stamp of approval on it, that, I'm, that I feel like it's worth their attention and time. So let's actually go back to Birdhouse. So, so you you created this app with with this other guy, right? Uh, with Cameron, yeah. Was that kind of what you were thinking you were going to be doing? Was uh, was becoming an app developer? Yeah, totally. Um, so, be, be, yeah, because maybe circa like two thousand six or something like that, I registered my name dot com and I and I registered maybe I think lonelysandwich.com. dot com, and I just decided. I do not like doing what I'm doing anymore because this because the trajectory uh, if I like, sort of sort of project into the future um, of doing what I'm doing in post production is that I keep working a lot of hard hours to get incrementally more money and then there's a ceiling and then what do I have to show for it is just like building my shitty IMDb profile. There's, it's a huge pain in the ass in post-production, and there's always so much expected of you. Um, in terms uh, of what? In terms of quality? In terms of the hours you work? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of quality expected of you on limited resources and limited time of time and money, and it becomes a factory in some sense. And uh, and then, but the, uh, I got real interested in the internet. What was going on in the internet? And um, I I always kind of had an entrepreneurial bent to me where I wanted to I wanted to sort of figure out a new way of doing something and then like convince other people that that was an interesting way of doing that thing um, like more working with the processes than the products themselves in a way so uh, I got really interested in the internet and at the same time I just like saw how valuable valuable it was um, just to make yourself known and I was kind of lonely I'll be honest like I didn't have a lot of friends. I mean, I had some friends and I had family that I love and my girlfriend that I love and everything. But, you know, there are a lot of people out there on the internet. And so maybe it'd be fun to share stories and things with them. And, um, 
So, and I think that the hook was Flickr. I think I started taking pictures with my cell phone and posting them to Flickr and just like immediately sensed the joy of that self-publishing um, uh, jolt, that ego boo um, that comes from uh, so e easily expressing something, you know, something that's very ephemeral and then having people be able to see it. Uh, like that was like the, the whole web 2.0 thing was that it made that, that sort of self-expression virtually, uh, uh, it sort of, sort of super democratic. Um, and so I like, I think I just made it an ambition to sort of like say to the world, here's who I am and be comfortable with online being the venue with which to do that. And then when Twitter came along, Twitter and Tumblr simultaneously, I kind of discovered that those would be interesting creative outlets. I used to write funny stuff all the time when I was in high school, like funny essays and things, and just like be so bored with school that I would write jokes into all of my history essays and make like make lots of shit up. And I wasn't the best student in the world, but at least I was satisfying something creatively within me. And so I just used that as a kind of an outlet to do this, something similar and, you know, try to goof around and make funny. And uh, it ended up working, you know, it, well, it just be, ended up being a time where a lot of people were sort of similarly doing that. And you would notice those people and say, oh, that's great. Good job. And, and that became a great way to make friends remotely. And uh, so I made friends and, I, and friends helped me do stuff and so is that how you met uh cameron uh with uh, with birdhouse yeah yeah i think i emailed cameron because he got he had a reputation for doing tumblr themes really cheaply and i needed one and so i hired him to to make one it was fun to it was fun to collaborate with something on collaborate with somebody on something digital and non-linear like that cameron basically decided he didn't want to be a designer anymore and he was going to teach himself some to, some code, um, Objective-C and Cocoa and stuff. And this was in the iPhone uh, SDK was just released. And we were all seeing interesting tools being made uh, and this whole new medium on which to play. And uh, like I told you how the genesis for my idea about Birdhouse, and I just wanted a place to publish my ideas for, for – to save and publish my ideas for Twitter – and I told, and I was having a conversation over text with Cameron one time because I thought, oh, maybe Cameron would like to work on this with, with me. And I and I said, I have an idea for a Twitter thing, but um, you know, it's kind of like something that has never been done before. And Cameron said, oh, I have an idea for a Twitter thing too, but I'm sure it's not like it wouldn't compete with your thing. Um, and I said, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. What's yours? And, he, and he's like. Oh, so it would be a thing that lets you save your drafts for Twitter and then publish them. It's like, no way. And then and it and so we decided to work on it together. And I was going to try to teach myself to code, and he had the same ambition, and um, he just did it a lot, lot quicker. So I gave up, and then so uh, we we still we we worked on it together, and he did all the coding. And I mean, he's a brilliant designer and brilliant developer and everything. And I just kind of lent my hand to the product in like 
sort of in a, you know, judgmental, like, sort of way. I'm not going to say that I had more decision-making power or over anything than he did, but, I mean, we discussed every single pixel of the app, and it was just really, really satisfying to do. And then when it came time to get beta testers involved, um, I was just I was the one who would write all the release notes, and I ended up that ended up being a creative exercise for me too, because I wanted to make them I wanted to write release notes that everybody wanted to read. Um, so we had a beta group of about probably fifty people of friends and um, colleagues and stuff, and I started you know it was just really fun for me to make funny release notes. And then, um, there was just this whole, uh, there was a celebration of humor going on in the, in the entire enterprise. The whole reason that the app existed was to make it easier for my friends to make each other laugh. When that's the spirit within the spirit of, of something like that is fun. Then the only way to market it is fun. So you did a video for birdhouse, which, which looks like really lo-fi compared to the the stuff that you're doing now, but it, it's an amazing video. It's it, you know it's funny and informative, and your personality is all over it. And and you know we actually haven't talked about this, but you're you know you're great on camera. You you have kind of like a like a dry you know uh, you know deadpan uh, kind of presence on screen. Uh, is is that something that you always wanted to do, like like to be on camera? Because you're you're not really acting. It feels like you're more or less being you. Right. Well, yeah. No, I'm I'm not an actor. I'm not anything close to an actor and I and I it, I marvel at the fact that anybody finds me watchable at all. I'm I like the deadpan dryness and everything. That's just that just is that's how I talk unfortunately. I've noticed it. <laughs> you know the, okay the other thing about you is so you come across as this calm kind of guy but you have these moments that you sort of wait for where where something else bursts through. Like <laughs> like you know like at the end of the birdhouse video. Um, so, so spoilers for the for the birdhouse video for people. Um, You're just gonna have to sit through all 90 seconds. Yeah, you need to <laughs> turn turn this off if you don't want to hear how that ends. But at the end of the video, you know the music gets really effusive, and you you lift your arm up joyously, and the, the color correction changes. It's like this weird yellow, you know, <laughs> yeah. colored spotlight on you. And there's the a yellow sense of, of the of the of the Twitter star. There, oh, that's what that is. I, I didn't yeah. know what that was. Yeah, it's kind of bursting from my chest. If you look see, carefully. that's I wow. You know, I I I saw the video like three times and I haven't noticed that. I gotta watch it again. <laughs> see, it's like every time you watch one of your videos, you see a new thing. But but and anyway, that's, and that's Andrew Andrew WK music. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. It's, and then, but then there's a sense of jubilation, like in your performance. You know, it's and it's great because it's it's unexpected from your demeanor. You know. It, and the same the same kind of thing happens like in the seamless video, but like on a smaller note. And you're you're on your couch listening to music, and you're like, uh, you know, you're like, Ooh, you, you know that moment, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, you just did that's it. Sly, that's sly, that's uh, sly, sly in the family stone. Yeah. Well, so so know, how conscious of you of doing that kind of stuff, like mixing it up with your, you know, with who you are. In, like, in my performance. Yeah. Well, like I have this weird sort of tick kind of thing, this physical tick, when I'm listening to music that really grips me and. Um, and takes takes over. Um, I have this weird thing where I can't control my physical movement in a way. Like if 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 it's like you're if, dancing. Yeah, it's a dance. Yes. Sometimes it's a full body dance. Sometimes it's just like a facial or a vocal reaction or something. But it's almost like it's almost autistic in its level of like complete <laughs> lack of. Right, you, you go full retard. 
Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for saying it. Yeah. So I go all the way. And and so and that is just like okay, so that that comes from a real place. It feels kind of awkward to have to recreate it on camera. But um the there's a point in using a great product where you feel that same thing, that jubilation, right? The and the the whirling dervish of using a great product. And like all the tech companies call it delight and they call it magical and all these different things that all come from Apple's, Apple's, you know, in, incredible copywriting. Um, but, but it all stems from the same idea, which is that, you know, indistinguishable, indistinguishable from indistinguishable from magic, a good product transforms the humor, the human experience. Uh, and so what I can do with the tools that I have is, is somehow illustrate that transformation of the human experience. And if I'm the person on camera, then I have to sort of like contort myself to depict that. Is that how you are in real life though? You have these kind of moments where you, uh, you lose yourself. I do. It's embarrassing. (laughs) Yeah. No, you know, if I'm in a, it's it's happened a few times where if I'm in um in the right place at the right time with the right music, uh, I'll start crying and I don't and I can't control myself, and it's tears of joy. And it's it's nothing else. It's just it happened once when I saw my favorite one of my favorite jazz pianists um, at a club here in L.A. and I hadn't seen jazz live for a really long time, but it's one of my favorite things to do. And I my girlfriend and I went and saw. Um, this pianist Benny Green and he's got these lightning fingers where he'll just like he makes beautiful music but way way faster than anybody else does and uh we walked in and we sat down at the table and I'm overcome by this emotion and this beautiful music coming from the stage and I started bawling you know to myself you know and it's just one of those and it happened a couple weeks ago when I was in Rio um for a shoot and we got to go to this uh like sort of a samba festival like a pre-carnival carnival and uh, we walk, you know, walk into this sort of indoor stadium, basically this indoor sports stadium, where um, the way it works is that these sort of samba teams, these teams that are that all participate in carnival, they do this to raise money so that they can participate in the festival. And these are just amazing musicians, and they're all standing, and they're all like mostly percussion. And, and I and we walk into this room, and there's people dancing, and it's just like one of those. It's it's one of those moments where the music and the and the music and the rhythm <laughs> overcome me, gl- gl- like Gloria Stefan, and uh, and it's in those moments that I believe in God. Uh, I know it sounds I know it sounds it sounds like out of control, um, yeah. uh, sentimental, but I'm I'm not lying to you. I normally am fairly agnostic about that stuff, but in those moments where there's something unspoken i find god in the in music in 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 people enjoying music collectively i mean i i don't think that's weird at all because i i um i was watching a uh, a google commercial uh the other day on my computer and i i literally like like tears came to my eyes mm-hmm. and and it was like and i was like i was by myself but i was embarrassed that it was happening because I, it was a google commercial who cries was it the, was it the D- dear sophie one um it, okay, so it's the one where, uh, this might be it, but it's the one where the, the, this guy's writing to his his baby, his little girl, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Oh my god! I like by the end of that, com- I was a mess. Yeah, it was, people it was love a that commercial. Yeah, yeah, you don't like it though. I'm not a fan. Yeah, really? 
dare but that's you, okay. Adam. We can we can. So what about the commercial bugs? You? It just it feels really manip- manipulative. It to is me. manipulative. It's like it's like Patch Adam. Yeah. No. I mean, like an up level, like a Pixar up level of manipulation. Yeah. Like, yeah. That I hate me I too. hate that movie because really. Yeah, because I went to it, uh-huh. and within about five minutes, I was bawling. Yeah, and I felt completely. Um, I had I felt completely emotionally molested. I hate and I hated that. And I just I just, you know, if something is that um, efficient, that within seconds or minutes it can cut through that deeply, and pull tears out of my ducts, I don't I don't trust it. <laughs> Really? So you don't like you don't you don't think you don't think about the skill that goes into that. You think this this is not right for me. No, I I think it's not right for me. I I feel like I've I've been toyed with. And there's movies like that that are really manipulative and you can you can feel the wheels turning, but certain things like um like that commercial to me like I don't I know that it's manipulative, but I I don't feel it, you know, when I'm watching it. It's it's like the moment is so it's it's kind of so perfectly modulated that it it just works on me. It really is expertly executed. I'm not going to lie with that. And and um a lot of the uh the the companies that have that I've talked to about doing a video like they want to know how to get some of that mojo. They want that's the that's the sort of the hot new color in product videos is getting the emotional experience. Right. Is, is that something that you're interested in exploring? Or is it's that not. Yeah. It's not. Right. No. When, when people approach you, are they usually approaching you to do something like what you've already done? Or are they, are they looking for, do they come to you with anything? Um, the, the ones that I want to work with have a product that they feel like my voice would be an appropriate fit for it. Uh, and again, my directorial or my authorial voice, not not my on-camera voice, or um, and a lot of times it you know sometimes it is a good fit, and sometimes it's the it's I can see from you know email one, it's it's a horrible fit, and so it's going to be a horrible fit, and you know, and I'm not the right person, and and I'm not going to try to fit myself into something that is not going to be a natural fit. Uh, and what are the signs of that? So when you get an email from somebody, uh, what, what are, what's the indication that it's not, that it's not going to work? It's either maybe it's the culture of the company that it comes from, where if I go to their website and it's like sort of a canned stock footage looking, these are the value propositions are, you know, about us. You know, we, if it's... Yeah, so there, there's a corporate culture that's always really, really, if they're doing, no, even if they're not doing their job right, the corporate culture is always readily apparent um, even in, in that introductory email. If there's, a, if there's an email signature that's like four, paragla- four paragraphs long with legal disclaimers, it's probably not a company that I'm going to uh, enjoy um, collaborating with. And why do you think they come to you? I mean, they obviously have seen your work and they know your style. Well, what everybody is after is uh, they want to um, they want to make their investment their investment in the product in the least risky way. So, what I am is somebody who's proven himself uh, to be uh, capable of making something of quality. Um, and so they want to work with quality and who can blame them, you know, who doesn't want 
to to spend their money on things that are made with quality. Uh, but they don't always consider whether it's a good fit. And and if it's uh, and the other sign is whether the product is so. I mean, it might be that the corporate culture is like awesome and great, and they're really friendly and and there's a spirit of fun in their site and the language that they use. But maybe the product is about you know facilitating um, transactions with your CMS or something. And in which case, I don't care. And I'm not going to ever be able to fake enough. Um, uh, enough enthusiasm for it that I'll make a good video. So if you don't if you don't care about the product, you're not interested in making a video about it. Yeah, right. Yeah. So th- that's interesting because I I tend to feel like I can get very excited about doing a video for a product I'm not particularly interested in if I'm excited about the video itself and you know maybe what the concept for the video could be or the mm-hmm. style of the video. You know, I I, I, I totally hear you. I hear you there, and I and I think that. In that case, your priority is telling an interesting story, right? Which, my, which in, might be a problem, actually, because you know it's it it should be more about the product, maybe. Well, did you do you really care about Pet Finder? Uh, no, I don't. But I, I, mean, I, I do a little could, bit. The, I mean, you know, I, be, I, the, yeah. like the the answer could be great. Yes, it, yes, I do. I fucking love animals, and I want people to connect with with pets. Right, with, I just don't care their about pets. their particular brand. <laughs> you know, but right. I mean, but yeah, but definitely. I mean, that that's you know, I think that uh, you know the the idea of Pet Finder is great. So yes and no. I think I think that that's. I think that priorities have kind of gone awry, gone astray a little bit in, um, in most of what advertising has become. Um, advertising used to say, "Smoke this brand of cigarette." It tastes good, and uh, it lasts a long time, and you'll probably get laid. Right. Um, An important lesson. <laughs> it was straightforward, and and. Uh, How do you respond to that kind of stuff? What oh, what kind of stuff? The, those kind of ads. The cigarette one. Or or anything like that. Something that's that's kind of based on style more than more than anything. Because I mean, well, you no, know, no. You, like Coca Cola is kind of the same way, right? I mean, when you're right, selling it's something, it's a lifestyle brand. Everybody yeah. knows what Coke is and what it tastes like. What your what their what their unenviable task is is reminding people what Coke is. Re- over reminding and people over that Coke again, yeah. that Coke exists. Sure. Not reminding people what it is. Reminding people that it exists and um, reminding them of all of the memories of the times in in that they've. Ex- I don't even want to say drunk, drunk Coke, that they've, all of the times that they were looking at the Coca-Cola logo and what's that meant, what's that meant to them? Whether it's like, you know, driving, dri- you know, driving in a taxi in New York City and seeing the Coke logo on a billboard or something like, God, can you imagine like all of the cruft that collects in our brain? I mean, there's 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 been plenty of written, said and written about that about what role brands play in our lives, and we've probably seen more brands than people. And the associations we have with them, and what they mean to us. Yeah, all that stuff, and and it's just over your point, lifetime, just Coca Cola alone. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely, or McDonald's. Various and, images, you know, that we've been fed. Right, and so there's that whole sector of advertising that's dedicated to that. That's not about uh, convincing people that their lives would be better for having used the product, but reminding people. Yeah. 
is that ever something that you're interested at all in? Are you in doing that? If if it, there was a great behind idea behind it, no, absolutely not. Mm. So, and that's what's interesting about you, I think, because you're. I guess you know what you do could be called in a way commercials. Commercials are are an advertisement about a product, and they're telling people about a product. And they're trying to get people interested in that product, and you're doing something similar in that way. But 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 what you're doing seems seems more kind of honest too, because you know you're you're coming at it with I need to like the product in order to to be enthusiastic enough to make this video. Yeah, but I have that luxury um, because the stakes are much lower and the scale is much lower and the budgets and everything. Is that how you how you would like to keep it? Um, it is, yeah. I would like I would like to live in a world where there's just like a proliferation of great, innovative products that people have never heard about before, and I get to be a part of telling people about those products. Let's talk a bit about how what you do is different from uh, what a what a typical commercial director does. The stuff you're doing is essentially describing the product you're given in a fun, inventive way and showing how the coolest elements of the product work. Um, you're, you're providing information for someone who's typically already going to have some level of interest in checking out the product. So they go to the company website or YouTube and, and watch your video on Mixel or Small Demons or whatever. Uh, so in a, in a way, what you're doing is, is less intrusive than a TV commercial. Yeah, 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 less of a disruption. I was just talking to... My friend, my, my, I, I was put it on Twitter today, but I, I just hired somebody, employee number two, and uh, his name is JP, and, and today was his second day on the job. So we've got, I've got, I'm going over this list of sort of um, bill of rights kind of stuff to talk about, about like, because right now I'm just sort of figuring out where the company is going and where I want to be um, in the context of, everything in the media and the inter in the internet and um advertising or marketing and and all that stuff so there's all this discussion that we're like in the in the middle of and um i mean one of the things that i just like a half an hour ago mentioned to jp was uh like that i'm in an advantage with this stuff because uh people get to discover it because behind the product the idea is that there's this product that exists and then if people are interested in finding out more, then behind the product there's something that they can go and actively do the work to discover. And that discovery is like is a piece of video and a short piece of video. But because they have done the act and, and they're um, they're they're pulling in the content rather than having it pushed at them, um, there's the the time limit is is a little bit more lenient. And I get like I like to say I get 90 seconds instead of the 30. Ideally, I'd love to consider what I do the, um, like a part of the tech industry, really, mm -hmm. because what I what uh, my aspiration is to um, uh, introduce people to some of these amazing, awesome tools and tech products of smart, innovative technology, and you know somebody within the company has to do that. Somebody has to, you know, you can't just make a tool. You have to kind of communicate a that it exists, and then b sort of why you why somebody would use it. And maybe they're not doing so much of that. I mean, they are doing that within the company. It's called a marketing department, but um, you know that's why sort of I exist is to be an extension of that 
part of the company and really like sort of an extension of that what you know no that's that sounds that's that's self-inflating bullshit i'm not going to say i'm an extension of the product that's lame but i am ext- an extension of the of the company that's making it if i if i get to be the, a part of a launch of something that nobody's ever seen before and something that grabs their attention then that's super awesome for me you know for a long time people thought that i was the inventor of square and then yeah, because people, you were all over it, right? Right. And then people thought that I, um, in my spare time, made something, an iPhone app called, or an iPad app called Flipboard. It's a totally awesome part of my job that um, if I'm on camera and get a, get to be a part of uh, introducing that thing, that, that people connect me with it or it with me. That was Adam Lizagore. What a awesome, awesome guy. I, I learned a shit ton from that. Uh, that was part one of my epic two-part interview with Adam Lizagor. In the next podcast, we go deeper into how Adam goes about developing the ideas for some of his work. We discuss his production budgets, as well as the sexual politics of the 1984 film Revenge of the Nerds. For the next podcast, I ever so humbly suggest that you check out Adam's work at sandwichvideo.com as we go into some of his specific videos. You can find even more Adam Lizagore-related content at adamlizagore.com. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at ron at swayproductions.com. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you'd like to see covered, feel free to send them my way, and please put Spotcast in your subject matter. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this podcast on swayproductions.com. This is Ron Small saying goodbye.